Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. Where we continue to follow the capture and killing of Osama bin Laden now. Those are just some of the scenes overnight as thousands of Americans gathered in celebration of Osama bin Laden's death. Former Navy SEAL Rob O'Neill says he has thought about the mission every day since that May Day in 2011. From multiple conversations you had with Rob O'Neill over the past year and a half, how'd you get And you described that his head kind of exploded yes, when you hit I, him. Yes, I actually hit him three times because I shot him twice when he was standing and once on the ground. That is the fucking American badass. Go, go, go. We are not going for fame and we are not going for bravado. We are going for the single mom who dropped her kids off at elementary school on a Tuesday morning, and then 45 minutes later, she jumped to her death out of a skyscraper. If you need help, hang up and then dial your operator. I'm Rob O'Neill, and this is the Operator Podcast. So here we are again. Happy New Year. Thank you for joining me. We took uh, one week off because of the New Year, because of the holiday season, and I think everyone was just doing their own thing, not listening to podcasts, so I took a little breather myself. Now we're back, though, episode 21. Crazy to think this is the 21st episode. I appreciate you being here of the Operator Podcast. I am Rob O'Neill, former Navy SEAL, and uh, we call it the Operator Podcast because everyone is operating in their own way. If you get out of bed and do stuff, you're operating. If you're helping people out, you're operating. So we call it the Operator Podcast because I am a, able now, as a former Naval Special Warfare Operator, to give you my opinion on a lot of stuff happening in the world, hopefully a little bit of history, uh, and you as an operator can correct me if I'm wrong, which people have done before and I appreciate it. The best way to get in touch is leave comments on the Operator Podcast's um, Instagram, at the Operator Podcast, or at Mikuya, I'm there as well. Um, so we're going to, to, what I'm going to start doing now, I, I am going to touch on some current events just because I, I feel the need to, and we should be talking about certain things. Other stuff I'm pretty much going to ignore. Uh, I want to get into some of the stuff that's happening in Afghanistan right now. And there's, there's really too much to cover in one episode. I'm not a big believer in the three hour episode, uh, the two hour episode. I, I think that, uh, I think I might bore you, so I'm going to keep it light. But I'm, I want to touch on some of our involvement in Afghanistan, why we were there for so long. Um, other countries that were involved in Afghanistan, why Afghanistan always wins, and um, why we never learn from mistakes. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to start, though, with some questions I got. I did a, I did a photo um, or a video recently with my, with my corn robe which I think is pretty funny, in front of rooster, the rooster Kyle. And if you guys haven't seen, <clears throat> Kyle's the stuffed rooster I have on the wall in my kitchen. He oversees uh, the cooking aspects, the scullery as well. Um, and people are asking me why I named him Kyle. I'm not going to get into why his name is Kyle yet, but I will touch on that. It's uh, a funny yet darkly violent story of Kyle's death and why he's on the wall. It's, it's pretty entertaining. And I did get some questions about... I, I get asked a lot about BUDS. Somebody asked me... But, so basic underwater demolition SEAL training is the training that every Navy SEAL needs to go through to get done with the first part of being a Navy SEAL. By no means 
um, after the whatever 26 weeks of buds and then you go to now seal qualification training, it's not even close to over then just because you make it through hell week, which is a, a week of no sleep running a few marathons with a boat on your head. Um, getting force-fed, though, you don't, you don't lack for food. By no means are you done. If you make it through Hell Week, you're not done. I know, I know a guy that finished Hell Week three times. <laughs> I actually did a podcast about him. He was the dude we called um, Mitch that was cooking for us in Bahrain on Thanksgiving and Christmas where we ruined his turkey and drank all his booze. I uh, went through Hell Week a few times. But, but uh, I think I, Bud's is a course where I think it's good to get anyone who's been through it or some guys that even have been to it and get their stories because I don't think a lot of the stories are the same. Even guys that went through the same boat crew in Hell Week, and a boat crew is uh, seven guys in a boat and you're a crew. Um, you're, you, you see your boat crew pretty much the entire time unless one of them quits, which happens. You actually watch guys disappear. Some guys just quit without telling you. you never, I've never seen some of them again. Um, but you'll never get the same story out of Bud's from from uh, different folks, so it's it's a um, it's quite an adventure. A lot of physical stuff, a little bit of academics, a little bit of diving, a little bit of explosions and you know bombs and guns and and uh, it's not the same thing. But I got asked on uh, Instagram recently uh, if I could make it through buds right now. So I'm 46 years old. And uh, Buds, I, I mean, Buds is still hard. You'll hear guys like me, the older guys, to say, you know, back in my day when Buds was hard. But uh, it's still hard now. It's a little more, um, a little more fine-tuned. Fine-tuned. They have it more structured. There are rules that are in place that you can't break. A certain amount of push-ups guys can do. But and I think guys are generally in better shape now than they were when we went through, because um, um, they take care of themselves. There's a lot more information about nutrition and what to do and get. You know, we used to run on cement in boots, getting ready for it. You don't get ready for that. Run in, run. If you run soft sand anywhere, run in tennis shoes. They'll have you run in boots. But could I make it through buds? If uh, if I went through now, I think maybe physically, but like I said, it's a young man's game. When I went through, I think I was 19 or 20 or what? Yeah, both. <laughs> I think I turned 20 there. Um, maybe, you know, the, the joints don't heal as fast. I, I have over a thousand skydives. I have some bundle jumps and tandems. I've taken some openings. Um, so, you know, I, a little little stretchy poo when you get out of bed in the morning so possibly but i think the reason i wouldn't make it through buds right now is because i would be too prone to tell the young instructors to go fuck themselves i'm not putting up with that nonsense plus i know i know i've seen the the man behind the uh behind the curtain and i know what's really going on so i think i might be too old and stubborn to get through so that's a it's a soft maybe could i make it through um but i do want i'm i'm going to talk about afghanistan because it's a 24-hour news cycle right now, and we don't talk about Afghanistan anymore. The other day, maybe a week ago, our press was acting surprised that the Taliban lied, and they're not going to let women go to school anymore, and they're not going to let them work, and they're publicly beating them, and they're going to execute them. People were shocked. Well, they told us in the Doha agreement that they would, yeah, well, they fucking lie to you, you dummy. But um, I'm going to touch on the Doha agreement, probably not in this one, but that's how we, once we realized we're not, we're not going to get out of here without uh, negotiating with these guys, and they're going to take it over eventually. They knew they would. We knew they would. The, well, not we. Or the people on the ground, so that we, the people that trained the Afghans, that we. Um, people were shocked why how the Taliban took it over so quickly, yet guys on the ground said, yeah, they're going to roll, roll it up in seven days tops. Because we've been teaching these guys for 20 years, and they, they won't show up for work. And I'll get into a little bit of the training. 
Um, I, I, but I, um, the reason I want to bring it up is to hopefully just keep awareness out there of what is there. Is um, I don't personally think the Taliban is a threat to us, and by us meaning the the coalition, the the West. I think that Afghanistan wants their valleys. They want their um, Islamic emirate. They want their their shitty few roads. They don't want Jeffersonian democracy. They want Islamic law. I don't think we're going to hear from them again. Is Al-Qaeda a threat? Yes. Of course they are. So is ISIS. But even when you get into that part of the world, they start calling themselves different names of terrorists. Like at the end, they were saying, well, Al-Qaeda is still a threat, but now ISIS is in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's the same group of dudes. They're just calling themselves ISIS and waving a new flag. But those guys could be a threat to us, which is why I disagreed with the way we withdrew. Because if if they set up camps there now and are training again, can we see them? Possibly. But we don't have the human intelligence we used to have. We don't have the access to getting a lot of drones overhead right now just because we ditched everything. They, they probably have our drones. Um, can we see them? Possibly. Is there a threat of training camps? Maybe. But there's other things going on that we didn't consider when we left Afghanistan. What The, the guys that we trained, not all of them, were the same. There were good dudes, and, and uh, our three-letter agency guys, our kick-ass Green Berets, our Army Special Forces, Navy SEALs, we did train some of their best guys. We found them, but we're not good at looking at the long game. We're not looking at what a, a lot of senior officers love to say, looking at the next ridgeline. That's like the, uh, that was one of the, the phrases that pays is when I got out of the Navy. But we didn't think about, well, at the time, yeah, just throw cash at these guys, and they're loyal to cash. They're loyal to their family. They're loyal to their tribe. They're loyal to Islam. They're loyal to um, the cash. And if you pay them enough, they're going to be loyal to you because you keep paying them, and you're stimulating the economy. But what we weren't good at was what happens when we leave. Well, now we have these dudes we've been training for 20 years, the counter-pursuit terror um, team or whatever we call them, the CTPT, Counter Terror Pursuit Team. That's a pretty cool name. It's, it's, uh, it's a lot to get. It doesn't roll off the tongue until you get used to it. It's kind of like when WWW first came out. We didn't really know how to Well, that's, you know, again, I'm an old guy. I, I was, uh, I wasn't, I'm kind of like Al Gore. I was there when the internet was invented <laughs> or whatever he said. Uh, I, I, remember, I remember the World Wide Web, and I remember talking about how eventually in life we won't even need to know how to solve the problem. We'll just need to know how to answer the question. Or ask the question, not even answer the thing. Um, but uh, what's going to happen to these dudes we trained that are good, that, that didn't throw their guns down and run the opposite direction? Well, they're going to want the money. They're not going to, even if the Afghan National Army could have stood up and defended, its, defended itself, which it proved it didn't and it couldn't, um, they're not going to take that, that, um, that paycheck, the lower paycheck. Who's going to pay them? The Taliban. How are they going to pay them? Well, how they pay for everything? They sell opium. Why were we burning the the poppy fields? What 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 the fuck did that the drugs have to do with the, what we were doing in Afghanistan? I'll get into that eventually. One of the reasons that we lost the war was because we were burning their goddamn crops. Like it or not, criminals are going to sell their shit. You go in there and start burning their crops, they're going to get pissed. You know what they're going to do? They might turn into Taliban. There was actually there was better deals when the Taliban was trying to be anti-drug. And anyway, that's what they're doing it now. But the issue is the Special ops Afghans that we trained, they, they're not sticking around in Afghanistan. They're going to beat it until they get hired by someone maybe in Pakistan. And that's the issue. Because the Taliban's good at that shit. They're good at renegotiating. They're good at, um, uh, you promise me you won't 
F with us and we won't kill you. And and a lot of times the Taliban will live up to their um Pashtun Wali, man. They'll 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 do what they say. And now they recruited guys that have been training our tactics from CIA, from Delta, from SEAL Team Six. Now what? Now there there's an issue because another thing that's happening is um the Russians are grabbing these dudes. Because as you may know, Russia invaded Ukraine. But it's not a very popular war. They're down to a point of conscription with Russians, where you know Russians are leaving Russia, trying to cross different borders, uh, having a difficult time because some countries shut their borders. Uh, we don't, but uh, they have these Afghan special forces, and the ones that don't want to renegotiate with the Taliban because they're you know they're they're worried. Uh, Russia's going to pay them to fight in Ukraine, and then hey, when you it's like the whole uh, a few acres and a mule, you can move to Russia, and it's not. Like it's going to be that bad of a place. They, if you haven't been to Afghanistan, uh, it's beautiful from afar. But you get in those valleys, I'll tell you what, man. You want to see some some kick-ass mountains, just go to Colorado. You get shot at less there. But, um, yeah, so I want to keep Afghanistan sort of in the forefront because of the awareness of what could happen. Because I, I'd hate to see this country again get, I mean, not blindsided, just just dumb and get hit again. And, and then we'll all pretend we're united and the goddamn Congress will stand on the, the front steps of the Capitol and saying, God bless America, and we're all united instead of fighting over this dumb first world shit that we make up and fight about. I just I want to keep talking about it. They're, uh, but they're over there now. And, and the new news in Afghanistan is, uh, well, the Taliban has changed the name, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, and that's how they're going to roll. I doubt the flag that Hamid Karzai designed on a napkin is still around. I think the Afghan... Or the, the um, Taliban, they use white flags, which is weird. But uh, right now, Pakistan is their neighbor. Well, it has been. <laughs> Pakistan and Afghanistan are neighbors. But now Pakistan is saying, well, the Taliban are using land in the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan to attack Pakistan. They're launching missiles. The Taliban is saying, no, we didn't. We're not doing that. And then Pakistan rattles their sabers and says, well, if you do this, man, we won't stand for that. You know what, Pakistan... You've proven before you're not going to do shit. You can't do shit to them. You're not going to send the conventional troops in there and mess with them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the Taliban is going to mess with Pakistan because they they don't believe in the borders of these countries. What they believe is in the Islamic world, the the caliphate. And that that means they want to get Pakistan, the government, the elected, well, the elected government of Pakistan out of power so they can take over and it can become one big caliphate. The issue, again, why you need to pay attention to this is because Pakistan is a nuclear power. I've talked about nukes before. Nukes are not good, especially if some of these um, hardliners, not crazies, but true believers, and we'll get into that. They're, they truly believe in their cause. That crazy aunt that was over at your your house for Christmas dinner, the one that that is born again and and she's crazy in love with the Lord. Well, they're crazier than she is, and they know they're right. And I'm not trying to insult anybody, but the people that know they're right, they know they're right. But what if you're not? Well, what if they get the nukes? Doesn't you don't need to be right? A nuke doesn't need to be right very many times, does it? So they but they're so they're saying that they are um, attacking from there. Uh, and the thing is, there's a there's a spot in um, northwestern Pakistan called the Fata, the federally administered tribal area, and that's lawless. There's uh, four million people, give or take, there, and they're all below the poverty line. It's 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 not it's kind of lawless. There's not a good way to do 
to do work to get anything out of there. I've been I've been there. Um, I, w- one of the worst gunfights I've ever been in was right there on the border of Pakistan. We actually bombed Pakistan during that fight. That'll be a different story. That was I was awarded uh, my first silver star for a fight near the Fada. But the the thing you got to realize is you don't just roll in there like a game of risk. The Fada is. These are like Grand Teton Mountains. This is some serious shit, and these are serious people that know how to live there. So it's it's. We used to have a. I forget the name of the program, but we had a program where we decided to arm the Afghan slash Pakistanis in the Fada because maybe they'd defend the border. Those are the dudes we ended up fighting because we we saw them on the border. Guess what? They weren't our allies, but they were certainly shooting the guns we gave them at us. So that's the kind of place this is. Uh, it is. Um, it is serious. We need to keep it uh, at the front. Again, I don't want people to be afraid of everything, but I mean, there are Afghans and Paki. Uh, I don't know how many countries are crossing our southern border because we have politicians that are too weak to even admit there's a problem. And it's going to be an issue, and I hate to say it. I'm not, a, I'm not a, a, a doomsday guy, but I'd hate to be the guy that's right when the suicide bombers find the school in Arizona, the elementary school. That's not going to be cool. But politicians are too worried about getting reelected. We're going through that bullshit right now with politicians. Um, and if people can get from Afghanistan and Pakistan and other parts there into here, it's it's not going to be good. If the if if the true believers get in here, and they could be here for now, there could be sleeper cells. Who knows what's going on? Because our border is lawless and wide open, and politicians don't care because they don't care about your safety. Politicians care about your vote, and not just your vote, your vote for them. If, if people crossing the southern border started to vote Republican, that border would be closed, you betcha. Um, so I, I'm going to get into a little bit of Afghanistan. Um, it's really interesting, too, because I, I started to study uh, the, a lot of the culture, but I wasn't studying quite enough to understand the culture. It's not like here. Like some people would fly over from whatever Air Force base over to Germany down to Bagram, read the kite runner, and then think they know Afghanistan. That's not the case. But I was able to, even my first deployment in Afghanistan in Jalalabad when I was there, even talking with the locals and figuring out, uh, I got to find some pictures, man. We had poppies, poppies growing in, uh, in our backyard at our safe house where our interpreters would go out there at night and they'd poke it with, there's these big, beautiful flowers like buds, and they'd poke it, and like this tar comes out and it would crystallize, and they'd go back there and lick it, and then they'd come to talk to us like they weren't high. <laughs> because you're not allowed to, because that's against the rules. Um, but all the way up to um, the Bin Laden raid, because we, SEAL Team 6, the team that was there, got a shit ton of intelligence out of Bin Laden's house. And I, what I want to do is, um, we, we knew as the, as the assault team on the ground in Abbottabad, Pakistan, killing Osama Bin Laden, we were, that's why we stayed for, I think, 47 minutes instead of the, tw- I think we wanted 32, but we went 47 to the point where Admiral Bill McRaven, kick-ass leader, couldn't have been a better leader for that mission. Um, he, he finally started telling us, you got to get the fuck out of there. It's time to go. But the stuff we grabbed, so everything from, from discs to handwritten letters, Bin Laden's handwriting, um, to the way they were communicating the, a lot of those, a lot of those documents are no longer classified, and they're called the Bin Laden Papers. And what they explain is the relationship between Al Qaeda and the Taliban, and Sudan, and Saudi Arabia, and Iran. Um, oh, and I, I remember the reporter said it's Iran. Fuck you, it's Iran. Um, but the, just the relationships and how they were setting things up, and and the way that they would speak to each other, the way that they, I mean, they they don't call they they. 
you got to figure these dudes are, are they call each other the brothers. Like they believe in their shit and they love each other. And that's and, and it's everything from why they attacked us all the way back to um, the Mujahideen that were fighting the Russians. You know, the bear went over the mountain and then he got his ass kicked. Why we were funding the Mujahideen, why we were funding what would soon be Al-Qaeda, because we got to beat the Russians, because we don't see the long game. So just from my experience a little bit before, um, we should all remember 9-11, that was Al-Qaeda attacked us. But what pe- you know, what's the relationship with Saudi Arabia or Afghanistan? Well, 15 and 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. And they weren't, they weren't dudes out of caves. These were educated dudes that knew they were going to heaven as martyrs. So from that to the Bin Laden papers, just how they think, I think it's important to keep in mind um, what's in, what, what, uh, what could potentially happen. But be smart about being stupid. Don't just turn it off because if you can't see it, it ain't there. I mean, I, I say that if I'm swimming in the ocean at night because that will save your life. If you can't see it, it ain't there. But not, you know, don't put your head in the sand. We talked about the um, normalcy bias. Just because something bad hasn't happened recently doesn't mean it won't. And people, when they see something traumatic... It's sometimes so shocking they don't know how to handle it, and that's your stick. In your, like that's why the ostrich sticks his head in the sand. So, I just want to keep that in mind, um, and that these are these are people. Um, the Afghans were people that lived in their real house with their real family, and we went in there and we scared the shit out of them at a point. And if you keep doing that, you are the occupier, you are the invader, you are the stormtrooper. But we wouldn't agree with that. We said, no, we're not. We're the good guys. You say you're the good guys. Al-Qaeda said they were the good guys. Who's the fucking good guys? Be smart about it. And uh, yeah, we're going to get into that. Like right now, I saw this story and it cracks me up. Uh, In that part of the world, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan and then Pakistan, and then India is over there, and they're also a nuclear power. We did talk about that. They don't like each other, right? Pakistan and India do not get along. They have, if you haven't yet, man, get on uh, YouTube or something like that and find... The, uh, there's a border where they do these cha- uh, changing of the guards, the Pakistanis and then the Indians. Uh, it's fucking awesome. And it's a show. And I guarantee these guys know each other. But historically, the countries hate each other. And if, the f- if and when, you know, depending on what our Congress does or what Vladimir Putin does, the first nuclear war might be right there. That's a problem that I've covered before. We don't want that. But India, Pakistan, don't get along. The other day... One of the the head dudes from uh, the Taliban, he like sent them a picture. Sent somebody in, in, in like the Pakistani Security Council a picture in uh, 1971 when Pakistan surrendered to India. He signed the paper to form Bangladesh. I'm like, man, you're fucking top ropes, digging deep for that one. That's hilarious. Just to mess with them because they said they're you're attacking us. He goes, well, here's you surrendering to India. <laughs> so, I mean. Hey, that's funny. I don't care who you are. That's you are you're a funny little terrorist. But we'll get into that. How we started. How there's no way we could fuck it up, but we did. But before we got to Afghanistan, before 9/11, I was actually at SEAL Team Two and SEAL Team Four. We traveled the world. I'm going to talk about that in a second with different um, different special forces around the world. Uh, one thing that we were doing all the time though was dipping tobacco. It's kind of a ritual in special forces in the military. And I've actually switched from uh, tobacco to black buffalo. It's a, it's a dipping tobacco substitute, but it's made of edible greens. Uh, it's, it's a taste and feel. It's a ritual, but not the tobacco. You will have the nicotine, so you need to be 21 or up and a current dipper. But if you want to try edible greens, they, they've spent a lot of time making this, so it's the same ritual. Go to blackbuffalo.com and use the code THEOPERATOR for 15% off your first order. And we are doing a dream hunt. 
March 3rd of this year. We get one winner. Go to hunt.blackbuffalo.com. It's going to be a hunt. Uh, me and Cowboy Cerrone, the badass UFC fighter, Ryan Blaney, NASCAR superstar, and Larry Fleet, a country music star. Um, you can hunt with us once in a lifetime hunt. Hunt.blackbuffalo.com. But go to blackbuffalo.com. Check out this uh, dipping alternative, the look and feel, taste of H tobacco, but it's edible greens. Blackbuffalo.com. Use the code the operator for 50% off your first order. But uh, the training we would do before 9-11 was, um, I mentioned we have a hard time looking ahead what's going to happen. We didn't see 9-11 happening, but we, we did train with a lot of our allies. I'll get into our allies in a moment, too. But we would train with usually some NATO allies, sometimes non-NATO allies. I, when I was a SEAL Team 2, it was – we had uh, the Mediterranean and the European theater and some of North Africa. And we go on these training trips called JSET, which uh, stands for Joint Combined Exercise Training. And you go there and you train with their guys. Um, and a lot of these countries are great because we get to we get to train with them, but they're kick-ass dudes too, so they'd show us their um, – their techniques, like we go to Norway and we train with the Norwegian Jaegers, and those dudes are serious, like alpine skiing and, and telemark and all that shit. They were raised there at rock climbing. Uh, those dudes are really good. They would teach us stuff. We train with them, um, you know, get in the water. If it was hopefully summer when the sun's still up, it's still cold in Norway. I don't care who you are. Uh, some skiing stuff, outdoor stuff. The rock climbing was great, but these combined exercises, the J-sets were pretty much all we were doing before 9-11. Uh, with our allies, and they're, they're, they've been doing it for a while. Uh, special forces go to other special forces and train with them. And I was looking up some stuff today. There was um, there was a, a recovery system that the CIA um, kind of invented, and, and special forces were trying to take it over to. And the, some of this training was done there. The, the, the one I brought up because the story is interesting is called the the Fulton Surface to Air Recovery System. Which is it's called that because it was um, invented by Robert Edison Fulton Jr. And what this is is it's a recovery method for a special operator on paper. And they started inventing this in the early 1950s. And what it is is the operator on the ground has like this balloon, and you fill it with a, a helium, helium, and then it shoots up in the air, and then you get picked up by like an MC 130, which you know at, at when when you're skydiving like you're jumping at 130 knots so that's moving so you, you put this balloon up in the air and the plane flies over and you're connected to the balloon and i guess like a hook comes down and um it picks you up and then you go flying after it <laughs> which to me sounds horrifying but someone invented it and they they did eventually use it on people but uh they they started off the experiments with dummies they would you know use a dummy with the same weight hopefully the same ballistics as um as a human, and I think they were calling it the skyhook, and the, you know it would it would work. The thing goes up to whatever five hundred feet. I don't know how it goes up in the air. The pilot can see it flies over. He's got a little hook, and there's a line or something like that, and you hook that, and then you just jerks you out of your shoes. But they they said it wasn't uh, it wasn't too bad, so they they were doing the dummies. This is real, and then they started to experiment on this um, skyhook with pigs, like live pigs, big pigs, because pigs, I guess, have a nervous system that's close to humans, which is true. We used to use the pigs in uh, for medical training. We would uh, for live tissue training. <clears throat> I'm not sure how much I can mention with this because Peter would be pissed. But we would uh, we, the, the the it's under the direction of a doctor, 
a veterinarian and the pigs are subdued. Not during the Fulton Sky system. I think that pig was alive and kicking. But when we trained on our um, our pigs, they were they were under anesthesia and they're not going to come out of it. But you get a test like tourniquets and whatnot if the pig gets shot. Pigs, whatever. They have the same nervous system close to humans. So they tried to pig this one time with the sky hook and like they hooked him up in his harness and they sent the the balloon up in the air and a plane flew over him at 125 miles per hour and it grabbed him and so i guess what it does is when it grabs you off the ground you're flying behind the aircraft and it starts to uh it starts to reel you in like with a winch or whatever pulley system and so and i guess like that's a maneuver they also used to use for a hung jumper. That's when you jump static line when you're connected to the airplane and you jump out. But if your parachute doesn't pull and you're banging off the side, they can winch you in. Doesn't sound pleasant. But the one time they did it with this pig, I guess it's uh, it got on board and it was un it was uninjured completely. But I guess it was uh, they said he was in a disoriented state because as soon as they lifted this pig off the ground, he's like spinning behind the plane. But he didn't get anything yanked off and he was fine. And then. Once you know they brought him on board, they have a pig there. They're trying to calm down. I guess once uh once it recovered, he was a little disheveled because it started attacking the crew of the C one thirty or whatever. I thought it was interesting. I didn't know that tidbit that they were testing on the pigs and that pigs will attack you once you winch them into a, an, an airplane. But uh, they were. I'm bringing this up because of J Sox J Sock J Set exercises in the past in 1981. So what they do is they name these J sets different names. And they keep the name, like, uh, th- this one's called Flintlock, and Flint ho- Flintlock 1 was whatever in the 60s, and then, but during uh, Exercise Flintlock was held uh, in ni- April of 1982, and during this, they were, this is the last time they ever attempted the skyhook, because uh, Sergeant First Class Clifford Strickland was picked up by an MC-130 using the fault and surface error recovery system, and there was a malfunction somewhere in the mechanics, and he, he did fall to his death. And that was the last time they ever attempted to use that. But that's the kind of stuff that they're doing, inventing tactics, coming up with ways to train with each other. The skyhook, hey, it's a good idea. I mean, you're in the 50s inventing that. But I, I guess the, the the technology with the longer range helicopters and whatnot that they just figured that wasn't worth it and they got tired of being attacked by pigs. <clears throat> but the JSETs were fun. We did, um, I mentioned the, the Norwegian Jaegers. We trained there with them. They have a, a Jaeger house. I believe it's in Lofoten, Norway. And I'll post a picture that's got me and McTeams again. I haven't posted that picture yet. But in order to get into the Jaeger house, I might have mentioned this story. You need to, it's a bong, a beer bong, but there's five Norwegian beers in it. And you have to do that before you can sign the logbook to get in the, in the, in the Jaeger house. And we, we did that. And then we trained with them, and they gave us a cool, some cool history because Norway's beautiful, man. Uh, if you've not been, I highly recommend it. Norway, it's like the, uh, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. <clears throat> that part of the world is just incredible. That, that's, that's like home of the Vikings. And I'm convinced, like, because they're beautiful people, but I think they are because they were stealers. They were stealing people from different places. Like, like I'm of Irish descent, and I know people of Scottish descent. And I think the reason that we don't look so good and need to rely on our senses of humor and our charming personalities is because the Vikings came down and stole all the good-looking people and brought them back. And they left us with this. So, um, But they told me a story. So during World War II in Norway, everybody wanted Norway because it was access to the Atlantic. And they had, I guess, uh, some serious um, iron ore in there. And we can use that for the ships. 
So I've even heard that uh, the the Allies wanted to invade Norway to get in there. The Germans definitely wanted to because they could use it as a sub base. And again, it gives you access to the the Atlantic. Got to go through the, some of those high seas out there. It's pretty intense. But a story they told me in one of these um, narrow canals. So the Germans came in first. They're going to invade, and they wanted to take Norway. So they're going to bring the Luftwaffe, the air the aircraft. They're doing blitzkrieg type stuff, and they want to get their subs and their ships and their their navy in there, and they're bringing. The uh, a lot of administrative folks they're going to make a base in Norway the the Nazis so they're rolling in and you know the Germans were pretty tough around this time and and they were they were crushing it but there was uh they brought like five ships in this really narrow um waterway into Norway and there was a guy named Anderson that um. I thought no, uh, yeah he he got he got called back. He retired retired from the Norwegian Navy, and he was he got called back. So he's 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 teaching a course because the guy that actually was running the course. I hope I don't have their name screwed up, but he's teaching a course to like their not necessarily even their naval academies, but like these conscripts on how to use this this gun. There was um, Germany had done their homework on what the defenses had, but there was one weapon the German military intelligence was unaware of. It's an under, it was an underground torpedo battery put into service in the 1901. So a long time ago, this guy happened to be teaching a course to these students on this gun as the Germans are rolling into town. Uh, so this gun that he had been teaching, he figured what a better way to teach a course than to do it for real, first time. And this, this gun was designed to fire a salvo of six torpedoes at once or one after another when they're sailing past the fort. So he's like, the Germans, here comes the Germans, and they're rolling up. He's like, cool, let's get outside. We're going to do this. So I guess one of the ships, the lead ship, got into point-blank range, as I'm assuming the professor, the retired Norwegian, the Royal Norwegian Navy officer, and he's like, fire away. They hit it with every shell, all six, and one round penetrated this this ship of war's armor and exploded inside a magazine holding oil, bombs, and depth charges. It started a really intense fire. The second shell knocked out the electricity of this. It's a cruiser, this ship, of its main guns, disabling their guns. So now they're stuck in the middle. Within a matter of minutes, this ship was um, crippled, burning heavily. Uh, within two hours, they were unable to uh, maneuver in this narrow fjord, hit multiple times, uh, it sank. So the ship that was coming up sank uh, with casualties totaling, six. they said 600 to 1,000 men. And the ship was carrying a ton of their administrative folks that were going to set up the base, and they died. So not only are they losing their ship and the waterways blocked, but the, the, uh, they, the, the, their, their admin guys are gone. And um, that, that was going to be their headquarters for their, their armored division or whatever up there to seize Oslo, the capital of Norway. So... So I guess some of the 2,000 sailors and soldiers were swimming for their lives. Now you've got to figure, they're in freezing cold Norwegian water, but there's oil everywhere. Now the oil's on fire, and they're trying to swim out of the wreckage. And the, the, it's like, to get, get back in the fiery water, you dirty Nazi. So a bunch more of them died. They wiped out their admin crew. That's such a crazy story. You think that the dude's in there on the, the brink of World War II. Everybody wants to get into Norway. He's teaching a class. D not supposed to be there. An example of wherever you are, just be there. He's teaching a course. What a better way to learn than go outside and blast these fools. So they did. That was a pretty cool uh, history of Norway. They, um, great dudes, like I said. All the 
and even like I was mentioning, there's Norway, Sweden, and Finland. Even Finland during World War II, they so they border Russia. They were not necessarily an Axis power, but they wanted to fight against the Russians because it turns out if you border Russia, you're probably not going to like those those jackasses. So they're fighting them. We so we would we 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 go to Norway quite a bit. Great time, great liberty, great beer. Um, if you can't get in a fight there because they'll arrest you immediately, so that's kind of funny. But we brought some Norwegians back. Well, we didn't bring them back. They came to visit us. So when I was at SEAL Team 6, the Norwegian Jaegers came over to Virginia Beach, and now they're training in the United States. And these dudes, I mentioned, that's a good-looking group of people. These dudes, they're hot dudes, and they are just rolling every chick in town. I remember those dudes came into C.P. Shuckers in Virginia Beach. And they're like, yeah, you've been you've been taking our girls in Norway forever. Now you get a taste of, the, of your own medicine or something like that. Pretty funny. Um, so we did that stuff there. Norway, we did a lot of stuff with the special boat service, the SBS, in, in the UK. Um, we, and we also started going to different countries that wanted to be in NATO. And I'll, I'll get into what NATO is. Uh, it's basically an alliance. It is an alliance that was designed after World War II for the purpose of defeating the Russians and, and a deterrent that way, a military deterrent. One of the countries that I had a chance to go to, before, it's a NATO country now, but wasn't at the time when I went there, and I forget what year that was, uh, probably late 90s, early 2000s, was Lithuania. So we called it the hotline, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And it's just because they're still recovering from all the dudes that the Russians killed. And so all it is is there's a bunch of women who are dressed at nine to go out every night. When, like we sent our advance crew over there to Lithuania. We're in Klaipeda, Lithuania. The capital is Vilnius. We landed, and the 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 advance guys happened to be our boat guys, and they were like, "We're like, how's it? You know, how's the liberty? How's the food? All the stuff." And they're like, "Just put your stuff up in the hotel, and we'll take you out. We'll we'll show you. You won't believe it." We're like, "What do you mean? Well, we'll have dinner at eight, and the girls start to show up around nine. And we're like, "The girls? What do you mean?" Well, you meant that Club Indigo is full of nothing but girls, and they weren't working girls. They're just girls that don't have. Husbands, we were all single at the time, so Lithuania was cool. We got to train with those guys, do some diving in Lithuania, diving on the ships, training with them, and it was interesting to see them because they really, as a country, wanted to join NATO because of the Russian threat, because they had been part of the Soviet Union before. They don't want to go back, and they know what it's like. There are people that actually know what communism is, what socialism is, and how it's really, really bad. It's not a good thing because you're a uh, entitled college student here, and you think socialism good because Che Guevara looks really good at that cafe on the wall. They know communism sucks. They've seen that. They've seen. I mean, I, I remember talking to people that had lived through it, and they just they're they're, they're they did love to see us. They love to see Americans, but they they don't they don't play that shit. Um, so we got to see that Lithuania really wanted to be a part of NATO. So we had some really great training over there. Liberty was good because, like I said, we were young. You go out every night, no matter where you are. It was a lot of fun. Very cool. Club Indigo was dope. The food was good. The the economy hadn't spun up yet, so the American dollar goes a long way. That's some of the stuff that we did. Training with people that want to be in NATO, people that actually take world events seriously. People right now that realize if you know Russia pulls a shit in Ukraine, Poland's real close too, so is uh, the hotline. Um, so that's, that's what we did with our allies. But that is traveling different places, different countries, some economies that aren't quite booming yet. Speaking of that, I've brought this up before. Um... What's happening here, we had a report come out after the second quarter last year that the American household net income dropped by over $6 trillion just in the second quarter. We see the big spending they're pushing through now, the depreciation of the dollar. That's This is the most on record. And were you prepared? What are you doing to plan for the next one that's coming out, the next report? Take my advice. 
Protect your financial future with gold and silver from my friends at Allegiance Gold. Allegiance Gold can help you protect your IRA or 401k with physical gold and silver or, if you prefer, have it delivered securely right to your front door. I mentioned I've been all over the world and there's only one universal currency that is always of value and that is gold. Allegiance Gold has some of the highest ratings in the industry. Five stars with TrustLink, AAA rated with the Business Consumer Alliance, and an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau. So go check out protectwiththeoperator.com and get up to $2,500 of free silver on a qualifying purchase when you tell them the operator sent you. Or give them a call at 844-790-9191. That number is 844-790-9191. We cannot control this administration but we can prepare for the consequences of what's going on. Protectwiththeoperator.com. That's protectwiththeoperator.com, or give them a call at 844-790-9191. So why is all this important? Well, because we were training with allies for the threat that we thought would come with Russia. Uh, After World War II and then the Iron Curtain, the split of uh, Germany, the wall, we founded NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty, with 12 founding members because of the, you know, eventual Cold War, the eventual nuclear deterrence or whatever the shit's going to happen. We founded NATO. Uh, There's 30 members now. They all want to be a part of it. But the first, there are 14 articles in the treaty. They kept, they tried to keep it simple, for as simple as you can with a bunch of government, a bunch of bureaucrats. 14 articles in NATO uh, 9-11 was the first time that NATO invoked Article 5. And I'm going to read this to you. Uh, Article 5, North Atlantic Treaty says, The parties agree that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all, and consequently, they agree that if such an armed attack occurs, each of them an exercise of the right of individual or collective self-defense recognized by Article 51 of the Chapter of the United Nations will assist the party or parties so attacked by taking forth with, individually and in concert with the other parties, such action as it deems necessary, including the use of armed force to restore and maintain the security of the North Atlantic area. Any such armed attack and all measures taken as a result thereof shall immediately be reported to the Security Council. Such measures shall be terminated when the Security Council has taken the measures necessary to restore and maintain international peace and security. So that's basically saying, you fuck with one of us, we're all going to fuck you up. Uh, In a nutshell, if an enlisted guy wrote that, that's what it would say. 9-11 is the first time they invoked Article 5. And the attack was so bad, worldwide, like there were candlelight vigils in Iran. And even some of the hardliners in Iran that hate us, they did not chant death to America after Friday prayers. And that was the first time in 22 years that they'd never done that. People were, I mean, there was a group of people who did cheer when the towers fell. It wasn't, it was near Israel. Wasn't Israel. It was the Palestinians. Keep that in mind. The next time you're listening to a bunch of those college people argue, Palestinians were cheering for it. But what this is saying now is that uh, NATO's an organization. It was, NATO was designed to fight a war if necessary in order to defend peace. Then there's the UN, the United Nations. It's an organization designed to avoid war in order to maintain peace. So they're both to maintain peace, the United Nations and the UN. But here is why we lose. 
because we start getting into these big bureaucracies that make themselves too big to work. You get, like I've mentioned before, these organizations where someone does not want to report to their senior, their boss, that something is going bad on the ground, that this is the truth that's happening and we need to change this. And that's what NATO and the UN, and this is all the, this is all the redundancy of these, um, I mean, I can't wait to talk about the, the globalization and the Great Reset and all that stuff, again, later, but these big organizations um, that take up space, take up time, take a, a lot of American money, we're paying for all this, uh, there are different organizations, the NATO, the United Nations, the EU, another big group of rich people that fly somewhere in their private jets telling you not to use diesel fuel, telling you not to use petroleum products, even though they don't realize petroleum isn't everything they're wearing, including their makeup and the shit that makes their heels and their hairspray or whatever they put in there. The, the UN, the United Nations, another one is, is uh, they've got 18 acres, their headquarters, 18 acres in midtown Manhattan overlooking the East River. That is prime time real estate. And all they do is go in there and bash America. Like Donald Trump went in there to talk to the UN when he was president, and he was not interested in globalization. He was more interested in in American uh, sovereign nation, United States borders, and they don't like that, so they're going to badmouth us there. Um, so so anyway, Article Five was invoked after nine eleven, which means we're going to go fight. Which means at this point, this is a just war. This is a just cause. We have all of NATO behind us. We can go in there, we can do what we need to do, and no one's really going to uh, say what else. You know, all we got to do for that is not try to invade another country, like Iraq, that had nothing to do with 9-11. Make stuff up for weapons of mass destruction. Who cares if they had them before they didn't have them and we went in? Eyes off the ball. Getting into these big, uh, taking advantage of these big bureaucracies so that we can get some of our personal military, military goals done, use of force, and we can still use the guise of 9-11. We start getting these big people with the nice waterfront, like the, the UN, uh, I'm sorry, not the UN, the uh, European Union is in, um, NATO's in Belgium, I think the, the UN's in Brussels, but it's all these people that get together and just start talking. Um, the UN's a fucked up one too. The, so the UN is, there are, there are five permanent members of the Security Council, and that is the United States, UK, France, China, and Russia. So those are permanent members, and they have um, veto power. So when the UN decides to do a sanction, all one of those countries has to do, I think they call them the permanent five or the P5, China, France, Russia, UK, and United States. All one of them has to do is veto the sanction, and it doesn't happen. That's it. So when um, the invasion of Ukraine has raised the question whether can Russia, as a permanent member of the Security Council, be removed from the Security Council? Well, they can introduce that, that, those sanctions, but get what Russia can do. They can veto it. So it's the opposite of a self-licking ice cream cone. You, you, you can't do anything. If China decides they don't want, don't want to play, fucking veto. Russia, veto. That's what they're doing. So they're, they're, this is, the, even if the, the, their solution is to get Russia out of the Security Council, out of the Permanent Five, if a majority of the Security Council members votes to remove Russia, even if Russia vetoes it, the action itself would be symbolic even though they vetoed it, and it would send a signal to the international community and to Russia itself. What does that mean? Nothing. Nothing changes. So yeah, NATO, the UN, and the EU, and the, the problem is when you notice if you're spending money, especially other people's money, especially other countries' taxpayers' money, 
you're not going to stop turning down a budget. You're not going to stop spending everything. You're not going to stop getting the nice view. Like the Pentagon was built quickly. The Pentagon obviously got involved in 9-11. Uh, not nine, well, 9-11, yeah. But involved with the invasion of Afghanistan. And we're going to Afghanistan based on Article 5 of NATO because we were attacked. NATO can attack. We're going to go there. But, I mean, the, the Pentagon itself is is an example of building something huge with other people's money and then it never goes away. And the Pentagon is just there. Um, there's 17 miles of hallway in the Pentagon that was built during World War II. The War Department turned into the Department of Defense. It's the largest office building in the world. Um, they, so it's, it's those rings. It's the five. We actually used to call it the five-sided wind tunnel because there's five sides of a huge building you could run marathons in and just wind going everywhere. Um, there are some interesting, since we're Pentagon talking, just interesting history f- facts here. The Pentagon, get a load of this. <laughs> was designed when it's so it's 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 right near DC in northern Virginia. Uh, it was designed when segregation was the law in Virginia. So President Roosevelt signed an executive order the previous year which forbade great word forbade discrimination against government workers on the basis of race, creed, color, and national origin. So the Pentagon became the only building in Virginia where segregation was not enforced. You've got to keep in mind, this is the 40s, right? Um, and because segregation was a state law, the Pentagon was built with twice as many bathrooms as needed for a desegregated building, the only one in Virginia. I mean, that's, that just tells you, again, that's the government working for it. I mean, obviously, that's the right thing to do there, but there's twice as many bathrooms because it was built during segregation. We still have it. It's still there. Um, it was attacked. The Pentagon was attacked 60 years exactly the day it started construction, it was attacked on September 11th, 1941. So that's a long time ago. World War II, obviously. There, there's. A, I, I was looking up the Pentagon too. There's, a, there's another cool thing. So in the middle of the Pentagon, this is again how two big governments can get over involved with each other and not realize that they're they're not doing the right thing. There was a a, a spot. So the middle, though, you get the rings of the Pentagon, and the very middle is just a courtyard. And Russia, this is during the height of the Cold War, when we were potentially going to get into nuclear war with the with the Soviets. They had a minimum at all time of two nuclear missiles aimed at a building in the center of the Pentagon. You can see it from overhead imagery, and they thought it was the command center. So they're going to strike that for sure. Turns out, and this is two. Th- these are the two superpowers in the world. That wasn't where they planned. That was a hot dog stand. I kid you not. They're aiming missiles at a hot dog stand. We don't know they're aiming them there because we don't know any better because we're the big superpower. And uh, they actually were calling it, I don't think it's open anymore, they were actually calling it Cafe Ground Zero. So this just tells you there's thousands and thousands of people working there. The Department of Defense is the largest employer in the country, and they can't tell the difference between a hot dog stand and nuclear holocaust. That's the Pentagon, that's government, and they never go away. They continue to sit there and suck up the money and suck up the budgets and then screw things up. So the point I was getting at, 9-11, we had every opportunity to do the right thing, listen to our guys on the ground, strike them quick, do it the smart way, but we got the Pentagon involved. We didn't use diplomacy the right way. 20-year war later, we lose. Not to jump completely off subject, but I was checking out some headlines and that dude got rolled up in Pennsylvania who was accused of committing those murders at, in Idaho at the university. Uh, he, he, I guess he went to Wazoo, Washington State, but he rolled over to Idaho and like, 
you know, they, I guess they were, that was a known house for leaving the doors open and shit, and four people were stabbed to death. It got me thinking about a couple weeks ago, I was bringing up home defense. First of all, lock your doors. I said outside, don't you don't necessarily need to lock your car doors because once they get in there, realize there's nothing in there, they might just leave. That's one thought, but don't leave your house open for people to come in and out. I guess that's what the house was like. And uh, I was thinking about pump-action shotguns. The reason I like those, and I took some heat, I don't know why, they're great for self-defense. That would have won that fight. I'll take a shotgun over a knife fight any day of the week. But since I've been answering, answering questions that I get online, they're asking what else, because I like a pump-action, but what else? The ones I've been using that I like, um, if you guys haven't seen uh, F1 firearms yet, it's uh, they're made in Dallas. A buddy of mine named Dion makes these things, and the, the color schemes got me at first. And then, obviously, they, they make AR-15, AR-10 style rifles. Uh, the the um, the bolts are great. The bolt action groups, the custom finishes, bolt carrier groups, all this stuff. They have like five, five, six, seven, six, two, I believe, two, two, four. Um, builder kits, grips, muzzle devices. I love to say shims and shams and bings and bams, all the good stuff. But we yeah, we brought those out to my event. We auctioned some off there. Uh, Ray Cash Care had one with a chainsaw mounted on it. I guess that's good instead of a bayonet. And McTeams had a flamethrower. He auctioned one off at his. Charity. Kick-ass guns, though. Um, the, anyway, the point is uh, that righties and lefties, they have um, great they're, they're, they, uh, law enforcement, military-grade type stuff, really kick-ass actions. That's also good for home defense. For all you guys that are listening or watching and telling me that I need to be ready when the SWAT teams come, come to get me, I also have F1 firearms, so they're definitely worth checking out. Just The color schemes alone are worth checking out F1 firearms, so not to jump off completely there, but uh, pump-action shotguns are still good. F1 firearms are good, too. <laughs> I know how to use those. And I think part of the issue is because it's just a culture of saying, well, this is the way we've always done it, and then teaching classes loosely based on lessons learned, but you keep doing the same thing. And I think our problem – and I, look, I'm not saying I have the answers. Um, I like to look back and think we should be able to change a few things. I'm, I'm guilty of a lot of the stuff that I'm saying, too, because emotions were so high after 9-11 – uh, personally, as like a tw- whatever twenty-seven-year-old Navy SEAL, I, I, whatever country we're invading, I want to go to and I want to kill as many of the bad guys as we can, and that's getting our emotions involved, which is very difficult after nine eleven because the world just changed for everything. Um, I think some some of the problem, and again, one of my resolutions is I don't want to be playing the blame game with everyone and saying you did this wrong and I did this wrong. Hopefully, we can come up with maybe some solutions, uh, better ways to do things in the future, learning from mistakes because that's. I think that's how you learn, inevitably, is by fucking up. And there were a lot of fuck-ups, which there were. And again, I'm not trying to stand on a high horse. Um, there are great people involved. The problem is we didn't, we weren't working together enough. We, we, you know, we, we were supposed to learn after 9-11 that there were too many people in different areas of intelligence that didn't want to share information, and they keep it compartmentalized, again, for personal reasons, self-serving reasons, and then all of a sudden we have towers falling and a, a plane get, uh, getting hijacked that crashes in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and the Pentagon gets hit. So, you know, we we were going to go into all of that eventually, too. But uh, I wanted to talk about the big bureaucracies involved. You're going to see a lot of the same names with a lot of the issues that we have. And we've talked about them before, the the same names being us, being the UN, being NATO, the Americans. Uh, Russia, you'll hear a lot. But uh, what I kind of want to cover right now, just to give a little bit, of a history of Afghanistan and Pakistan because I mean Pakistan is if you've never been there Pakistan is the center of the universe everything always gets supplied through Pakistan if we're sending them arms to fight the Russians they're going through the port in Karachi 
But here's just a very like I can't cover the uh, the whole thing, but the land of Afghanistan has a long history of being dominated by foreign powers. Uh, it's a it was the gateway between Asia and Europe, and we're talking back you know 500 BC, uh, Alexander the Great type stuff. Uh, they're, uh, they're, a guy by the name of Mahmud of Ghazni, 11th century conqueror, created an empire from Iran to India, is considered one of the greatest Afghan conquerors. Uh, Genghis Khan went in there 13th century. I'm really bro- broad brush stroking this. By 1870, the it had been taken by Arab conquerors, obviously from the Middle East, and that's where Islam started to take root. So that's 1870. During the 19th century... Britain was looking to protect its Indian empire because, you know, that's how the Brits roll. Uh, And they attempted to annex Afghanistan, which is landlocked, and that led to three wars, uh, British-Afghan war. So the Brits are fighting there, um, and inevitably they end up withdrawing. In in 1921, beleaguered in the wake of World War I. So World War I, the Great War just ended. They're kind of over it. They're defeated, and they leave, and Afghanistan becomes an independent nation, Concerned that Afghanistan has fallen behind the rest of the world, Amir Amanullah Khan begins a rigorous campaign of socioeconomic reform. Again, this is going to be some of the same stuff you see. Um, Islam, economic reform, nation building. This is Afghanistan in 1921. 1926, they had a dude, Amanullah, and he just decides to proclaim himself the king, 1926, and launches a series of modernization plans that attempt to limit the power the national of the National Council, the Jirga, and uh, critics are frustrated with his policies to take up arms, 1928-1929, and he leaves the country. So they're at war. There's, we're in between World War One and World War Two. A guy named Zahir Shah becomes the king in 1933. So people just kind of roll in and say, we don't need a monarchy, so I'm in charge, which means it's a monarchy. And he brings this dude, uh, Zahir Shah, brings a little bit of stability, and then he rules for the next 40 years as king. That doesn't sound democratically elected, but I'm seeing a pattern that maybe Afghanistan's not going to be. Then in 1934, again, between the two great wars, the United States formally recognizes Afghanistan, 1934. 1947 is when Britain finally withdraws from India. So they're getting out of there. We had it, we've been having issues there for a while, but now they withdraw, and uh, they created a predominantly Hindu but secular state of India and the Islamic State of Pakistan. So in 1947, the Brits roll out. They, um, they rec- well, India is formed, Pakistan's formed. They're on the borders, Hindus and, and, and Muslims, and they should get along great as neighbors. Uh, 1953, uh, pro-Soviet general Daoud Khan, cousin of the king. Again, stuff you're going to see that's familiar is there's the king, I'm his cousin, which means I'm in charge. I'm going to hire people in my family. So we can all grease the skids together. You see that a lot in a lot of different uh, political environments. Um, he becomes a prime minister and looks to the com- um, to the communist nation for of Russia for the economic and military assistance. So Russia's in there, communists is in there. We hear Islam, we hear socioeconomic reform, and so now they're linking with communists and uh, more social um, reforms. And this is where we start to try to include women in a more public presence. So you see that now. We're trying to uh, put in different governments. We're trying to put different different um, alliances, and you start to hear, we need women to be doing more. So they're trying to get women involved. These are the same problems. 
that we're seeing now and we're going to keep seeing probably forever. I, I don't want to try to predict the future. But okay, so they're getting reforms involved. 1956, the premier of Russia is Nikita Khrushchev. He agrees to help Afghanistan and the two countries become allies. So now Russia, communists, Soviet Union, they border. Now they're allies. And then women are allowed to attend university and enter the workforce. 1957. Uh, 1965, so we push ahead not quite a decade, and the Afghan Communist Party, they secretly form. So Afghan Communist Party is there. 1973, the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan comes to power. That dude Khan abolishes the monarchy, and he now names himself president. So no more monarchy. I'm in charge again. Same thing. Um, and the Republic of Afghanistan now gets very firm ties with the USSR, the Soviet Union. Um, from 1975 to 77, they propose, propose a new, that dude Khan proposes a new constitution that grants women right, women women's rights, and the, um, works to modernize the largely communist state. So he's going to listen to this. He's going to use communism to make the state better. Communism will definitely work this time. That's what everyone says. It just it hasn't been done right before, so this time communism is going to work. And with communism, what does he do? He cracks down on opponents. So people that are stepping up and speaking out, they get shut down. They get canceled, if you will. And because they're, they're saying they're trying to force him out of power. So he's a guy that proclaimed himself the president, Communist Party. They are obviously, I'm, I'm assuming the word fascist was thrown around, so they're shut down in prison, all that good shit. In 1978, is when they feel like they have their big boy pants on and they proclaim independent, independence from Soviet influence. And now we are going to leave communism and declare our policies to be based on Islamic policies, or Islamic principles. So they're going to become an Islamic state. With uh, Afghan nationalism, instead of using the Soviet Union and, and socioeconomic justice, the word justice gets thrown out a lot too, uh, they did f sign a friendship treaty with the Soviet Union, which is great, but a rival... A rivalry between the two uh, inside the country. Now, two communists are going to fight it out. And at the same time, conservative Islamic and ethnic leaders who objected to social changes, the women in, in the workforce, they began an armed revolt in the countryside. So in June, the guerrilla movement called the Mujahideen, which holy warriors, is created, and they're going to battle the what they call a Soviet puppet regime, the Soviet-backed um, government in the capital of Kabul. 1979 rolls around, late 1979, and we still have an ambassador to Afghanistan in the capital of Kabul, and his name was Adolf Dubs. They called him Spike Dubs, which is a sweet name. He ends up getting kidnapped. He's driving through town with the security guard and, and you know, ar an armored car. Some militants stop him and tell him to, uh, you know, get out. They pull the they pull the driver out, threaten him with a gun. They grab Spike Dubs, the ambassador, the American ambassador to Afghanistan, and they kidnap him and bring him to a uh, hotel. And they're people are trying to freak out. You can keep in mind too. Now this is around the time of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Jimmy Carter's president. Uh, not a lot of stability. There's a lot. There, so Spike Dubs is killed. He's executed. He was shot a few times in the head at a, a matter of uh, eight inches. They said obviously executed. And then the guys that executed him were still alive. They were killed after uh, some Afghans stormed the, the hotel where they killed the ambassador. And the thing is, they were all killed, but they're saying that this mission was run by the KGB. 
So the Russians had interest in getting the Americans out. Uh, whatever happened, he was killed by Afghans. They might have been backed by the KGB. And uh, we finally leave Afghanistan. We being the Americans, we leave. And then the, uh, the 1979, the USSR, the Soviet Union, invades Afghanistan to bolster the faltering communist regime. So the Soviets are now going to take it back. Uh, and there's widespread opposition. And the Soviets start... Um, there's violent uprisings, and the Soviets are trying to put them down. And it turns into the, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan, where the, the communist government is running the urban areas, but the Mujahideen are now fighting in the mountains. They rule that place. By 1982, about three million Afghans have fled to Pakistan. Another million and a half have fled to Iran. And the fighting continues. Russians are killing anyone they can. They're using nothing but violence, which, again, proved that doesn't work just to go kill people. And right around 1984 is when you start to hear, it's not necessarily proven, we will get into this in later episodes, but that's when you start to hear the name Osama bin Laden because he's this rich Saudi financier. He rolls in there. I'm not certain of his role in the fighting, but it did give him some street cred. And then we are supporting... We, the United States, are now supporting the Mujahideen. And that's called Operation Cyclone. So this is the mid-'80s, and we start. We sold everything through Pakistan. So we're going through Karachi. The Pakistan Intelligence Service seems to run everything over there, and we're going to run it through Karachi, and I'm talking everything. So we're sending whatever anti-aircraft guns we have, not a lot of stingers yet, but we're going through the port of Karachi. They're going through the Torkham Gate, going over the Khyber Pass, and then we start really supplying, but Karachi actually ended up becoming, Karachi, Pakistan, because of the way that you're going to see it work in this part of the world is when we start supplying them with money to help with your political situation and your urban situation and a little bit of arms, it's not getting to the people that want it. When you supply aid to a country full of warlords, the, the money's not getting to the people and they're not getting the aid, they're not getting the food. So Karachi, Pakistan becomes one of the most violent uh, cities in the world. This is in Pakistan and the Russians are fighting the Muj. Um, we start really supplying them. Uh, there was a couple guys, uh, Congressman Charlie Wilson, who was instrumental. He was running with the, the CIA. It's in the movie Charlie Wilson's where Gus Avocados was a CIA guy and then Mike Vickers was a young CIA guy they were running this program that started with a little bit of money and then a ton of money, uh, a lot of Stinger missiles. By 1986, we, uh, the Mujahideen were, were shooting down so many Russian helicopters. They were defending strategic landing areas, shooting them in passes, shooting them as they were taking off from airports like Jalalabad. Uh, and then they left. And that, this actually ended up leading to the fall of the Soviet Union because they leave. And then we decided that we're, we're uh, supporting the Mujahideen, but we better start trying to buy back these unused stingers because that's they obviously work really well, but now they're in the hands of these uh, bad guys, even though we're not sure what bad guys are. And so we attempt a buyback program because we don't want them in the hands of anti-American fighters. And then uh, we started to do that more right around... Uh, late 2001 after 9-11, we really need to buy more of these back. So... Um, they leave there, and then Pakistan is now armed F-16s. Like I don't know how many we sold them, but they got all these. They leave, and Afghanistan's kind of getting overrun. That is where the warlords start to come in, and they're battling it out for Kabul. They're trying to take it over. Everyone from the north, different tribes are coming through, and they're battling out for Kabul, which 
there's so much blood, so much violence going on. This led to the rise of the Taliban in the 90s. And the Taliban came in saying, we're going to bring back Islamic fundamentals. We're going to be fine. You're going to like it. There's going to be order. And there was. Uh, and then they got violent, which is what they do. They tell you one thing, and then they crack down Islamic stuff. Women are no longer going. And here we have the Taliban. So that's the, I mean, an extremely short version of the history of Afghanistan, just to just the realization that there's always been war there. There's always been warlords there. There's always been invaders there, and the people have always had to deal with it. So they've been dealing with that for hundreds of years. That's that's the brief um, formation, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. The port of Karachi is very important for a lot of this stuff, where the arms go through, how people deal with that. And uh, we just didn't take the time to realize the corruption that goes on there. It's not like customs. When you send stuff through there, people are greasing their pockets. Um, and uh, I want to talk eventually about, I just wanted to get to the rise of the Taliban, how the Taliban came in with strict Islamic law. And I mean, that works sometimes, but it doesn't work the way you want it because it's, it's the strict Sharia law. Women are not doing anything, beatings, beheadings, that kind of stuff. But also the communist part, that doesn't work either. But that's how the Taliban formed and how we were supplying the Mujahideen. We didn't, we kind of cut ties with all the funding with the Mujahideen and the left, and they're going to eventually target the United States. Uh, Saudi Arabia is obviously funding a lot of the stuff. Bin Laden was a Saudi. 15 and 19 hijackers were Saudi. But they were actually in Sudan at first. They, got, they left there because it was getting too hot. They were involved with a lot of things. We'll, when we get into the history of Al-Qaeda and how that formed, we'll talk about the bombings in, in Africa, the embassies, the USS Cole. They, uh, they were involved with, in Black Hawk Down in Mogadishu. That's, a, that's where they're kind of getting their balls as far as if we attack the Americans, they're going to withdraw. But they did end up as a safe haven in Afghanistan where they launched 9-11. And it was so emotional after 9-11, once we realized what was going to happen, we're going we're gonna to come kill uh, Al-Qaeda. We're going to come get them there. And, and again, we'll talk about the history of Al-Qaeda later. But the problem that we had with getting emotions involved is we didn't take the time to realize that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were not the same thing. And the Taliban may not have even known about 9-11. In the Bin Laden papers, they did, they did mention that Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda would not necessarily get the approval, but they would let him know, Mullah Omar, who was the head of the Taliban, what we're doing. But they launched 9-11 from there, and then we just jump into a war. We had to. And we have to, we have to um, get in there and fuck people up. But how are we going to do it? we got to take the time to realize that this isn't a, a conventional war. This is not against an enemy where we're going to use the um, the standard. Well, we don't even have a standard of how we win a war. I was reading some stuff about a lot of books have been written on this, and they're teaching people, I guess, so I have them written right here, the ways to tell you won a war, uh, technology, sustained ruthlessness, discipline, being receptive to innovation, protection of military capital from civilians and rulers, will, and the belief that there will always be another war which is fine. The belief that there will always be another war is a good one too, but some of those might not fit because now we're fighting a bunch of dudes that are dressed the same as the populace and we didn't really get a chance to know our enemy. We went in there. The, 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 um, our special forces, the CIA, went in there and they kicked their ass. They crushed them with bombs. They pushed them out and we're dealing with... Um, there's a lot going on in the world. We're dealing with different warlords, but we're arming everyone we can find that we think is on our team. We didn't take the time, especially when we got on the ground, that... In Afghanistan, because of all the arms that are being run through there, everyone pretty much has an AK-47, but it doesn't make them a combatant. But we jumped into a war with really not realizing who the enemy is. And it's not as simple as good guys and bad guys. Yes, Taliban was supporting al-Qaeda, 
but they, they they're both very religious but religious but they have different goals al-qaeda does want the um, islamic state they want world dominance where the taliban are extremely local if that makes any sense at all and they're local pashtun tribes that's the taliban um, and al-qaeda was arabs that were kicked out of sudan living and they're also foreign fighters as far as the taliban was concerned once we crushed al-qaeda we need, we should have we need to stop take a breath and assess it we can't get emotional. Like, I mean, it's a very emotional time. And like I said, I'm guilty of it too. I didn't care who I was shooting. But you need to stop and take a breath because once once you get the emotions there, the chaos is going to bring the chaos. We didn't take the time to say who are we fighting and why. The Al-Qaeda was pretty much decimated into, you know, we crushed them at Bora Bora. We crushed them the entire way. We kicked their asses. Militarily, we've proven we can do that. But then they went to Pakistan. And we knew they went to Pakistan, but we're not going into Pakistan. We're going to rely on these allies the Pakistanis, which aren't really going to help us because they've got personal interest involved in where and 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 uh, as well for their own personal gain. So we went through there, and we did have like the Northern Alliance, but we're arming everyone: um, war criminals, drug traffickers, and the locals there that we didn't get time to know. They found us very, very easy to manipulate, and we were rich. We're handing out money to anyone, and uh, we're we didn't realize we're dealing with a people that have foes or enemies because of a family feud that goes back a hundred years. And they found out the easiest way to get rid of their enemy, their their family enemy, was to tell the Americans they were Taliban. And then we'll go in there and kill them. And not realizing that, that if you're doing that to local people and stormtroopers like us are coming in and killing, that, that's, that will cause a rise to an insurgency. And again, I didn't have the answers at the time, but you got to realize what are we doing to the local populace? And this... This turned into the longest war we've ever been in, but it could have been the shortest. There was they, we had a conference hosted by the UN. I'll let that sink in. So the, uh, the UN's involved. They definitely have our interest in mind. It was in Bonn. It was in Germany, and it was a power sharing agreement. And that's where they agreed that Hamid Karzai would be the interim president. And because he was a Pashtun and because he, he had ties to people and he could, you know, he was a warlord or whatever, and we just kind of let him. The, the big problem we had there, because emotions were so, running so high, the biggest mistake we made is we did not invite the Taliban. We didn't take the time to realize eventually we are going to have to negotiate with the Taliban. They're probably going to retake this over or some form of it. We kicked their asses so good, a lot of Taliban were saying they would surrender and they're going to work with it. And for some reason, we didn't realize maybe the locals don't want us here building stuff they don't want. I'm going to get into that in future episodes. With these, are, these are these people are way different than we are culturally, and they don't want the schools. Why would they put someone in school to learn how to count when they could have them out in the field tending to the sheep? Like I've heard stories of some of these guys talking to Afghans. I, I really want to get into this in a future episode. They didn't know how to count. They could. They could name each of their five brothers, but they didn't know it was five, if that makes sense. It's a, it's a different planet. It's a different time than we are, but we, we're going to go in there. We're going to bring in a democracy. We're going to build an army, and we're going to build your nation, and we're, we won this because everyone loves us, and they're never going to see us as occupiers, which they did. So these are all decisions that we made based on emotion, which you really shouldn't be doing. Uh, even you know, And I, I'm guilty of it every single day. The emotion gets high. you got to step take a step back and take a breath. The, the one story where I kind of realized we need to take a different look at this, that we're fucked. And this is, I wasn't there at the beginning. I wasn't in Afghanistan at the initial invasion. 
Um, the 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 Green Berets that were there were kick ass. The the SF guys, the um, the seals that were there were awesome. I had a chance to work with a guy, a friend of mine. One of my first missions in Afghanistan was with a, a senior dude at SEAL Team Six, senior enlisted guy, and he's a big tough guy. And we were going to go out, and uh, he's been training these guys for a while. He's trying to explain to me uh, what it's like to train these guys and how they. They don't take the time to shoot. They love to fire automatic. They really believe that when I shoot the bullets, it doesn't matter if I aim because, inshallah, God willing, the bullet will go where it needs to. And we're walking out with some guys there. They've been training. So we got an, a small army of dudes in these gray Afghan trucks that we bought them, and we're patrolling like a, a you know a click offset to this thing, and a, a gunfight starts. And now we didn't realize at the time, if someone shoots at you, they might just be shooting to defend their land shooting at the thing walking and they're just shooting thinking that Allah will guide the bullet to the bad guy so it, we don't know if it's a fight but they start shooting at us and then the the Afghans that we, we trained start shooting back full auto it's just a gunfight so the guys they're shooting at are shooting back full auto bullets are flying and I look over at the dude that my guy that's like we're doing a turnover and he just kind of slumps and like flips his nods up and walks back to one of the trucks and just sits down in the truck waiting for everyone to um shoot all of their rounds empty magazines yet smoking guns nobody got hurt i don't think on either side and uh, our guys are all out of bullets so they come back they load up their trucks we're gonna go back to our base and he just he starts the truck my buddy and he looks at me and goes there's gonna be a long fucking war so um, I want to get in future in the future talk about some of the history of Al Qaeda, some of the missions in Afghanistan. But that I wanted to say just a brief intro to the fighting that's always been happening there. The same names always are involved: the Russians, the Communists, the Socialists, the Americans, the Brits, the uh, occupiers, and the stormtroopers, Al Qaeda, the the Mujahideen, and all that shit. So um, again, if as long as you as long as you step back and take a breath and don't let the chaos turn into chaos. Because on the opposite end, calm will turn into calm. Take a deep breath. And you might be in the fight. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands. And are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.